And now a reading from the scriptures. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. Fancy. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go into the Lord's sanctuary and to burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcome with fear. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and to many people, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and the power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children. And he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. The angel replied, I'm Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. Afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. She kept to herself for five months saying, this is the Lord's doing. He has shown his favor to me by removing my disgrace among other people. Amen. Well, happy Advent to you all. Um, So, I mean, like obviously tepid response before. Is Advent something that people kind of have celebrated in their lives? Show of thumbs. All right, we got a handful. A handful of thumbs, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Probably the angels. Uh, Advent is a time of anticipation. It's a time of announcement. So Jesus is coming, and this is sort of like a perpetual Jesus is coming, right? This is like the theme of Christianity. It's like, Jesus is coming, and it's like, when? (laughs) Uh, Later. Soon, someday, also already, don't worry about it. Um, Advent is a special time of year where we both remember the first time that Jesus came. 
and we kind of get, we just like really get into the story. It's like a method acting kind of remembering of the birth of Jesus. It's like, we're all just gonna pretend that Jesus wasn't born yet so that we can all be so surprised when he was. And so we get really into the story, but that also helps us anticipate a promise that we have received that Jesus is coming back. And like, that may not be the way that some of the folks here really relate to Jesus is this kind of imminent experience of like, oh yeah, he's coming back. He'll walk this earth. It's going to be great. How many people have folks in their lives who feel very strongly about the second coming of Jesus? Yeah. Would those folks like love Zhao? <laughs> Mostly no. But I think a lot of people who have that like deep understanding that Jesus is coming back have it attached to a kind of theology um, that, that's been hyper-politicized, very conservative. But I think they're actually right about Jesus coming back. Insofar as like Jesus said, I'm coming back. What we can't quite comprehend is what exactly that means. There's so much evidence across the scriptures that like human beings have a perspective on divinity, a perspective on eternity, but we're just not able to comprehend it all. There's like something unmanageable about the full scope of even who God is that, that like our bodies cannot contain. So we've got to kind of like look in our periphery and be like, Jesus is coming. But we have no idea what that really means. In the same way that like when Jesus was going to be born for the first time on this earth, people were like, the Messiah is coming. We feel like we know exactly what that means. It means political conquest and, uh, you know, kingship and our nation forever, right? And they were like pretty wrong about that. <laughs> are pretty wrong about how empire and Jesus would be related to each other. So we can't really anticipate well what it means that Jesus is coming back. But Jesus actually asked us very explicitly to prepare for his coming back. He's like, yeah, you're not going to know when. You're not going to know like what it means. It's fine, but don't sleep on it. You know, like I'm coming back. And we are meant to take that absolutely seriously. In fact, a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus is to not shut up about the fact that like, God's coming. We're not abandoned. We're not left to our own devices. But God is both with us and on the way, always. And that we are anticipating a time, a moment, a future, wherein we have a kind of intimacy with God that has not been felt since Jesus walked the earth. That is the hope that we proclaim as followers of Jesus, that God is with us and coming imminently nearer. And it can feel a little bit naive, right? We look back on history and we're like, wow, this has been kind of, kind of a disaster for a while. What evidence do we have that like suddenly it's ever gonna be better? It feels really naive, really foolish to put our hope in the idea that God is imminently coming to make things better. It feels a lot safer to say like, well, empire's always been in charge and like we believe in God and God is sort of with us, but we would never be so foolish as to, you know, hope that God's gonna come and just sort of like topple empire tomorrow. But that's exactly actually what our faith calls us to believe and calls us to live 
When we get to Joy Week, we're actually gonna see how Mary, in her proclamation, talks about the liberation of God as though it is present and how that's actually a really radical move. But today, we're just, we're just cracking the door. We're talking about the announcements, what it means to have a season where we're really focused on people saying, hey, you guys, hold up, though. Jesus is coming. Like, God's, com- God's on the way. Like, we don't know the hour or whatever, but it's going to be soon. And like, let's get ready. Let's get pumped. Here we go. And we have, leading up to the birth of Jesus, a whole bunch of announcements, a whole bunch of divine messengers coming to be like, hey, guess what? Jesus is on the way. And this was like a much more culturally kind of relevant thing at the time, right? Like a king would never just like show up, right? Like a king's gonna show up with fanfare. That's literally where that phrase comes from. It's like trumpets being like, the king, Get pumped. And that's what all these announcements are about. That's this whole season is, is, is God's messengers coming to be like, oh my gosh, you guys, guess what? And sometimes I get kind of bummed out because this feels like another moment that's just a little bit like otherworldly. You know, like I've never met an angel. Nobody's ever like blasted a trumpet in my face to be like, God's coming to visit you. And And it just feels very far removed, right? It's like, you know, I'm cool. You could come visit me every once in a while. It's not actually, like, I think sometimes we think about the scriptures as being just like littered with with God sightings and angels and stuff. And it's like, well, that must have been a fun time to be alive. And now it got really boring. But actually in the scope of like, thousands of years and the literal thousands of people who are in the Bible, um, God shows up maybe 10 times. It's like highly disputed how many times God actually shows up. And God comes in these kind of like masked ways, right? Like you can hear God's voice from like three rooms away, or it's like God speaking through like a tornado or whatever. But God doesn't actually show up. And I think that that's related to this this experience we have that like we can't, we can't contain God. We have to look at God through like a series of mirrors, right? Or like through a shadow. God famously walks in front of Moses so that Moses can like glimpse his butt a little bit because if, if God were to show God's face to Moses, Moses would like explode or something. And it makes me think of, has anybody ever seen Dogma? Alanis Morissette plays God. It's great. <laughs> and, and like they, there's a scene where it's like, yeah, if you hear the voice of God, your head explodes. And because it's a Kevin Smith movie, they have Alanis Morissette speak and Ben Affleck's head explodes. <laughs> but it is this kind of like this embodiment, this understanding that like there is something so, like we're finite, part of this infinite power, beauty, glory. And we, we long for it. We want to see it. We're a part of it. But in order to comprehend it, to make space for it, we would have to come undone. And so God is very cautious, it seems, with when she shows up and how and to whom. And so it only happens in moments when things are really unbelievable. And And God has these intermediaries. And so God sends angels 
also part of this kind of infinity that we can't quite grasp. And, and so when angels show up or when God shows up, which are pretty rare occurrences, it's when there's something that's so unbelievable that we couldn't hear from God in other ways. Because like we're all hearing from God, scriptures like, oh yeah, God speaks to us in many different ways and different times, and it's like blah, 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 the prophets. We're all part of the conversation. We want the, we want the big sparkly stuff though, right? It sounds cool to be like, well, Gabriel stopped by to give me a message from God. But we don't normally get that privilege. And frankly, it sounds like maybe that's a good thing because if anyone's keeping track, the first and loudest thing that the angels always say is, don't panic, <laughs> right? Like they show up and we don't, it's, you know, somebody's writing this down. We're like passing along stories, right? They're trying to keep it tight. We've got a really big book going anyway. We need to respect the editors. But like, if we were to get like a visual snapshot, it seems as though just based on the script alone, whoever the angels are interacting with are going like, ah! right? Angels are terrifying for, for whatever reason, because the first thing that they say is like, calm, deep breaths, please stop screaming. I've got a message, right? So it's not ideal. Something big and important and out of the norm is happening when an angel comes. And in the anticipation of Jesus' birth, we actually have several angel sightings. And this season of Advent, we're gonna talk about four of them. They're all these announcements, these, these moments of God sending God's messengers in this like terrifying, important way. Because they're like, well, you know, I, that was a very beautiful sunset, but I don't think you're going to get the specifics from that. Right? Like God is speaking to you in this really profound, immediate way. And I know it's terrifying and I know it might melt your brain a little bit, but we've got to get this done. So we might think like, okay, the people that are going to receive those messages are like like Mary and like maybe some important political figures or whatever. And the first person in this entire narrative, I don't know if you noticed, Luke chapter one, right? All the different gospels have different perspectives, but where they start is always really important. It's like, this is the thing you need to know first. Luke chapter one, an angel comes to visit, obviously, Jesus's uncle. <laughs> uncle Zechariah everyone's favorite Bible character. The one you know the most about. The one that no one would forget enlisting Bible characters. No, this is like our only story. It's our only story of Zechariah. Uh, he's easy to forget, but he's actually quite important here. And Zechariah gets this message from Gabriel, who is also very important and, and feels like you should already know that uh, he's important. So this first message about Jesus' coming is to Zechariah. And it's actually like, it's, it's not an announcement of Jesus' birth. It's like a pre-pre-pre-announcement because Jesus is going to be born and John is going to prepare the way, right? Um, but John has to be born. And so Gabriel is saying like, John, the preparer of the way for Jesus is coming. So prepare the way for John to prepare the way for Jesus. Got it? Very important. <laughs> Very important. So we've got these, these characters, Elizabeth and Zechariah. 
And because I'm guessing we don't, as a whole, know a ton about Zechariah, we're going to review. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described in the text here. And they're described um, in these really uh, kind of honoring ways, right? Like the scripture is, is laying out like, these are good people, um, which is kind of fun because a lot of the times scripture uh, opens and is like, these are really important people in the story. They're bad people, but that's okay. <laughs> but every once in a while, we get people who are like, these are good people. They, they generally did a good job. They've, you know, they've done all right. Zechariah is a priest. Now, this isn't the high priest. The high priest was always an installment by Rome at this time and was like kind of a political puppet. But there were lots of other priestly duties. And, and the way that it worked in this community is that you'd be kind of like in, in priestly active reserves, right? You'd like go about your life, but then a couple weeks a year, you would get called up to to be the one doing the priestly duty. And so Zechariah is a part of this lineage of people who have dedicated part of their lives for generations to leading um, spiritual community. And so he's called upon to lead this incense um, sacrifice. And it's really cool. Like he, he comes in and he goes into the temple um, and he prepares this incense and he's in the inner part of the temple, this like extremely quiet, still sacred place. And he's lighting incense and the people are, are all around the temple and all over, you know, all over the, the, the place, the, the communities, the tribes, the diaspora, like everyone there is praying and Zechariah is at the center of it in this like very still private space, lighting incense and watching that incense go up to God as a symbol of everyone's prayers. And it's so beautiful and still. And all of a sudden there's another person there with him that maybe looks like kind of a monster with like lots of wings and eyes and spinning wheels if Ezekiel's to be trusted, right? And so Zechariah like freaks out. Zechariah panics. And that seems to make a lot of sense to me personally. Like, I don't like when anyone taps me on the shoulder and I didn't know they were there, right? But you're like in the inner sanctum. It's like against religious law for most people to go in there. And, and Zechariah is like in the zone. And all of a sudden there's this, this like monster figure. So the angel does the script. Hey, don't be afraid. Take some breaths. Here's a cup of water. You know, like let's... Let's bring it back down. And that message of do not be afraid seems very telling, right? That this is an unsettling experience. But it's also really on theme with the rest of scripture, right? Like it might even just be like a summary point. Like, hey, message from God, don't be afraid. Also some other stuff. Just the standard boilerplate uh, summary of what we're about. Don't be afraid, and some specifics, right? Like, don't be afraid is one of the scriptures that is, that is repeated most often. Um, like, don't, do not be afraid shows up over and over and over again in our holy texts. And I think it's the reason it's, it's kind of that precursor is because you can't really do most of the other stuff that we're commanded to do when we're terrified. And there are so many reasons in this world to be terrified, 
And there is so much crushing power that is terrifying in this world. And yet, if we are to topple empire, if we are to be present with our loved ones, if we are to become the person God has called us to be, the first thing we need to do before we can make moves on any of that is check our fear, is offer it up, is lay it down. How are we supposed to have hope when we're afraid? How are we supposed to have peace when we're afraid? How are we supposed to love when we are afraid? The answer is we've kind of got to figure it out because a lot of us are afraid a lot of the time. But I think that rather than finding a way to both be afraid and have hope, we need to figure out how to lay down that fear over and over and over again. I'm terrified, but if I can lay it down for a second, I can have one second of hope. And then maybe my fear comes back and that's okay. But then I practice again, do not be afraid. And that hope comes back stronger. And we practice again and again. Do not be afraid is not uh, an admonishment for being afraid. It's not uh, a, a shameful thing to be afraid. It's an encouragement. Lay down your fear. Let perfect love come into your being just in this moment and cast it out. I understand it might come back. That's fine. We'll cast it out again and again and again. Love is limitless. It can help you lay down that fear so there is room for hope. And so the angel says, Zechariah, don't be afraid. Cast out that fear. I've got some really incredible news for you. And so the angel explains, you and Elizabeth are going to have a kid. Now, Elizabeth is also really rad, right? Like we've got the credentials from Elizabeth that she also comes from a priestly family. And there is this kind of shout out, right? Like they're both good people. They're both righteous. They're both like deeply dedicated to their spirituality, to their community. And the reason the scripture says this is because at the time, not having a kid would have been like not only really unusual, but also a huge bummer. Um, having a kid in that time was was not just um, you know, a personal choice about how to experience your life and how to build family and, and a choice towards love. It was also like an economic necessity. And in that time and place, it was a spiritual and religious practice. These are descendants of Abraham and Sarah who were told that their descendants would number the stars. And so having descendants was a part of spiritual identity. It was a part of, of, of being in the legacy of God's family. And so there were a lot of people at that time who said like, oh, well, if you can't have kids, that must be because you did something wrong. And the scripture is really, really clear about this. I think this is why, like the scripture, like I'm sure that Zechariah and Sarah are not perfect uh, people. Zechariah and Elizabeth, excuse me, are not perfect people. But the scripture is making a point here to say like, they didn't do anything wrong. There's like nothing, God didn't punish them. Not being able to have a kid is not a punishment. And that has to be said in this time and place because it was so commonly held. And so the scriptures go out of their way to say like, nobody did anything wrong here. This is just a situation. Like if, if Elizabeth didn't have kids, if, if Zechariah didn't have kids, there's probably like a medical reason. And so the scriptures are like alerting, like, hey, whatever your cultural frame of reference is for this, it's not because they were being punished. 
So we've got these folks who are experiencing something that what probably would have caused them tremendous grief and loss. The scriptures are affirming you did nothing wrong. This just is, is what's happening in the way that it is. And in the midst of all of this, after years, probably decades, of that grief just being a part of their life, here comes this angel being like, hey, you're going to have a kid. And Zechariah's like, okay, like, I don't know if you heard about us, but like, that's not in the cards. I think of Zechariah as being like a grounded uh, individual. Like, you know, we're, we're all, we're given these stories so that we could see parts of ourselves and our community in scripture. And Zechariah in this story represents to me my, the part of my personality that's the Reddit, well, actually guy. Well, actually, you know, like, I don't know if you know this scary, weird angel monster, but um, for those of us who are human with human reproductive organs, like when we reach a certain age, if you're a person with a uterus, you go through something called menopause. And Gabriel's like, what are you? I'm like, I, I was with God like five seconds ago. I'm Gabriel. <laughs> and Zechariah's like, okay. <laughs> That's very cute. Um, but I don't think so. Like, no. And Gabriel's like, yeah, this is, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And Zechariah's like, okay, how will I know that it's going to happen? And Gabriel's like, because God's, because te- God, I'm telling you, God told me to tell you. It's going to happen. Listen, fine. Okay, you know what? You don't believe. That's fine. You won't be able, you won't be able to comprehend it. You can't talk about it. You can't, you can't get on board yet. But it's still going to happen. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. You file this away for when you can finally accept it. Your kid's going to be rad. You got to name him John. Who knows why? You got to name him John. He's going to be dedicated uh, to this, you know, priestly type of life. He's going to live differently. He's going to be a little weird, right? He's not going to drink because he's going to be a drunk on the spirit before he's born. Uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe they got into the details about the locusts and the honey and the being in the wilderness. Who knows? But the angel said, like, this kid is coming. This good thing is happening, whether or not you can let that into your spirit. And one of the reasons that I think of Zechariah as this kind of like, uber-realistic kind of guy, this like science-first sort of pessimist, is because there's a part of me that's like that, right? Have you ever wanted something so bad for so long that to say it out loud feels shameful? To say it out loud feels stupid? Like, if you want something and you know that it might happen but it feels like it probably won't happen, then even saying it out loud feels naive, right? Like, if I were smart, if I were savvy, if I were worldly, then I would prepare for the fact that this probably isn't gonna happen. And that could be something personal, that could be something political, right? Like, we are called to hope for the liberation of all people and all creation across time. That feels extremely naive, right? God's coming and to genocide soon, right? And it's like, you know, well, that feels very stupid to say. I think that can also happen at like a personal level, right? Like, 
whether that's I, I want to, to have this accomplishment in my life, or even like I know for me before I met Cameron, it felt really naive for me to even like say out loud, I want a partner. I want to be loved. I want to be seen for who I am. When we want something really bad, it can feel very dangerous to even hope for it. And that is that fear again, that fear, that fear that we actually have been abandoned, that God is not coming for us, that fear that we cannot be the person we long to be, that fear that we actually won't ever be loved for who we are. And so we can't even be so naive as to say it out loud. I want to be loved. I want to aspire to these, these ambitions I have. I want to be a part of a movement that changes the world. I want God to come back now and bring liberation and salvation to all things. When we say it out loud, it feels so vulnerable. Some people interpret this scripture as God rendering Zechariah unable to talk. But I think Gabriel's just observing. You want this so bad. Zechariah, you want a kid so bad. You can't even say it out loud. You can't even tell people. Because what I'm telling you feels so unbelievable to you. You're like, I moved on. I had to get on with my life. You can't come in here and promise me this thing that I've, I have hoped for for so long. Now you're telling me I can have it? I don't believe you. I'm not going to look like an idiot going out there and telling everyone else about it. And so Zechariah can't. He can't believe it. He can't speak it. And he's rendered speechless. He can't believe or speak at all. At this point, a lot of people outside are like, where's Zechariah? <laughs> it's been a minute. Did you, are you okay in there? But he comes out and he's got this incredible news, but he can't speak that aloud. It feels too vulnerable. So he starts gesturing. And he engages in this really bizarre, high-stakes game of charades. And after a while, they realize, oh my gosh, Zechariah has had a vision. Like, Zechariah has encountered God in some way that is beyond our understanding. What a weirdo. And they all go home. And so he goes home. He goes home. He had been at the temple, which is outside of where he lived. And so he goes home. But he still can't speak. And the text says that after those days, Elizabeth did conceive. Elizabeth gets on board. Something about it feels tangible, real, understandable to her and her body. And she's like, oh my gosh, look what God has done for me. And so she is embodying this promise, literally. She stays inside for like five months, maybe because even though she can get on board, she's like, I, people are not gonna... No one's gonna, this is not gonna go over well. And then she gets a visit from her, from her cousin. Mary comes to visit, and Mary is like, you will not believe. <laughs> but Elizabeth does believe because when Mary comes, Elizabeth, who is pregnant, feels John leaping and kicking, moving inside of her, perhaps for the first time. And, and so Mary comes, and 
and Elizabeth and John have this reaction and Mary's like, oh my gosh, you're not going to believe this. And Elizabeth's like, I do believe it, I do believe it. And then they're talking about it and, and they're getting so pumped, right? And the Holy Spirit is, is there and they're feeling it. And Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, Mary, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Oh my gosh, why has it happened that the mother of my Lord has come to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there was a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Which like, depending on the spirit of that statement, it's maybe kind of a sick burn against, against Zechariah. Right? Like, blessed is she who heard and believed. Uh, but if we're going to be generous, maybe Elizabeth is just naming a truth, right? Like, what a blessing, Mary, that you heard and actually could, could believe it, could trust it, could excise that fear enough from your body to come here and tell me about it. What a gift. And so here we have Elizabeth and Mary, the women in this story, telling the truth of God's miracles, able to believe in a way that Zechariah could not. These women have hope and it is manifesting in their very bodies. That hope makes things plausible that would seem impossible otherwise. We need hope in what feels impossible. We are called, that is like a fundamental fixture of our faith is to hope in things unseen. If our fear dominates our body to where we cannot even hope for a future that is different, if we are so wedded to being savvy so that we never have to look naive, we will never see the promises of God. We will never accept them. We will never bring them into our bodies. But the promises of God are coming whether or not we can articulate them. And actually, we all have some innate ability to feel hope. There is a battle inside of us. What will win out in this moment, in this day? Will it be hope or fear? Zechariah is still in the midst of that wrestling match as Elizabeth and Mary see, speak, preach out what is coming. We have to live not only in the world as it is, but the world as it can be the world as it is promised, the world that we long for. And once we are bought in enough to look stupid, once we are, are over our, our like ego uh, attachment to looking smarter than everyone else, we can be the voice of God in the world. We can speak the messages of God that we have received. As soon as we can truly let hope take up enough space in our bodies, it comes pouring out of us and we become the prophets through whom God is speaking to the world. When we are bold enough to lay down our faith, bold enough to foolishly proclaim that which we long for, that which we desire, that which we have been promised, we become the prophets of liberation. We become those voices of hope in the world. We follow in Elizabeth and Mary's footsteps and we proclaim the truth given to us by God that we are not alone, 
that we are not abandoned, that we are loved, we are seen, that God is here and God is coming. Liberation is on the way. Now you might worry about poor Zechariah. Is he doomed? Has he just totally fallen off of the promise wagon? But he sticks around. That war inside him rages for a long time. A long time. Elizabeth continues in a healthy pregnancy. Elizabeth gives birth and Zechariah still can't believe it. Still looks at this tiny child, a promise of God, and can't speak the words. Still can't accept that it's real. It's too vulnerable. And then eight days later, at the ceremony of this baby's circumcision and naming, the people say, what are we going to name this kid? Obviously, we're going to name him Zechariah in honor of his father. And Elizabeth is like, no, I told you it's John. And they're like, shh, whatever, lady. Zechariah, obviously it's Zechariah. And in this moment where the prophets of God's truth are not being listened to, Zechariah finds it within himself. He offers, he still can't say it, so the first thing he does is write it down. He writes down, he, um, you know, he scrawls out for people. John. Now, Zechariah isn't even the one proclaiming that initial message, right? He's yes-anding the prophets who came before him. But he says, yes, this is true. This is what our hope is in. I believe this was not just happenstance. This isn't a coincidence that not only is this child here, but a gift from God, a gift of joy, a gift to lead the people, a gift to bring hope back into my life. I believe. And Zechariah finds that hope within himself, declares it silently, but with his body for the people around him. And as soon as he makes that vulnerable offering, now he can speak again. Now he can't stop speaking and he begins to prophesy. Could we get that third reading up? I'm throwing off the tech team, jumping all around. John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, bless the Lord God of Israel because he has come to help and has delivered his people. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in his servant David's house, just as he said through the mouths of his holy prophets long ago. He has brought salvation from our enemies and from the power of all those who hate us. He has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the solemn pledge he made to our ancestor Abraham. He has granted that we would be rescued from the power of our enemies so that we could serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in God's eyes for as long as we live. You, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. You will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. 
Zechariah gets it. Zechariah cannot contain it anymore. Zechariah's hope is spilling out of him in words of prophecy, echoing, mirroring, amplifying the women who have gone before him, the prophets who have gone before them, the messenger of God who came to them directly. Zechariah could not hold hope at bay forever. If you are in a time when hope feels naive, if you are in a time where you cannot speak the truth of God, know that it will come to you eventually. Know that your inability to speak hope into your life does not mean that that hope doesn't exist. And if you are somebody who has a grasp on hope, know that your call is to let that tumble out of you to let that reverberate through the community. Not everyone can speak a word of hope in every moment. And so when we can, in any moment we can, we are called by God to speak a prophetic word of hope, no matter how foolish, no matter how naive it sounds. It is our call. We live into the promises of God by declaring them to be true. And those same folks who would look at us and think us foolish are the ones who are battling inside of themselves with fear. They deserve support and compassion. So if you are a person who cannot speak, know there are infinite prophets out here ready to speak for you. Speak a word of hope into and over your life. And if you are a person who has that hope, know that that hope is not naive. That hope is holy. It is powerful. It is essential. And we are all called in our overlapping moments of fear and hope to remain present to one another as community. Because each of us at every moment of our lives has contained some Elizabeth, Mary, yes, and prophecy, and some Zechariah, some fear, some absence, some unwillingness, inability to trust. As you can, lay down your fear. Offer up hope to yourself and to one another. And until you can, know that the prophets of God are doing that for and with you, that we are not in this alone, and that our hope will be realized. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for sending your prophet John. We thank you for sending your prophets Elizabeth and Mary. And we thank you for sending your reluctant prophet Zechariah. God, make prophets of us all. For those of us who cannot feel or articulate hope, let us hear it and bear witness to it from one another. Let it find root in our bodies. Let it cast out fear. And God, as we speak your hope into the world, may we come to believe it. May we put our trust in the naive hope of your liberation, the naive hope of your complete love for each and every one of us. May foolishness be wise in your sight, God. And may we be your people. Amen.